Carl is continuing to preach from Genesis and we're up to Genesis 15. So if you have a Bible, we'll turn to Genesis 15. We'll read the whole chapter. It's where Abram desires a son. It says this, after this, and after this was, if you recall, if you were here last week, um, King Melchizedek, the king of Salem, gave um, Abraham 10% of everything he had, of all his assets. And then there was another king, the king of Sodom, he thought, um, I'll give Abraham some, some gifts as well. And Abraham rejected that. He said, no, um, just, cover, just cover some of the costs of my men. So Abraham really showed a lot of trust in God there. And, but I think in chapter 15 we'll see again the faltering faith of Abraham, but um, we'll see how we go. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took Abram outside and said, look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness Dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, 
Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. So there's quite a few lands there. Any idea how big area that is, Carp? Big, I reckon. I know, I know the, um, the river Euphrates is over 2,000 k's long. So sounds like a pretty big piece of land. Thanks, Carl. Well, uh, I don't know about you, uh, whether you keep a track of, uh, you, whether you watch the news, whether you follow politics, but one of the things that you uh, notice when you follow politics and follow the news is that the world, and politics in particular, is full of broken promises. Uh, in 1987... Bob Hawke said during the election campaign, by 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. In 1988, George Bush, the first George Bush, running for president, said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then uh, proceeded to recommend an increase of taxes in his term. More recently, Julia Gillard famously promised there'll be no carbon tax under her government. And Tony Abbott, of course, promised before the last election that his government would be a government which would provide tax cuts without new taxes and no cuts to education and no cuts to health. Well, those promises all stand in tatters, don't they? The world is a world of broken promises and politics, just like the rest of the world, is full of broken promises as well. We're used to dealing with broken promises. We're used to dealing with politicians breaking their promises. But what do we do? What do we do when it seems like God is not keeping his promises? What do we do when God doesn't seem to be keeping his end of the bargain? What do we do when it doesn't seem like God is fulfilling what he said he would do? Well, that is the issue that Abram is struggling with in Genesis chapter 15. And I want to think a little bit more about that this morning as we look at this chapter. Uh, As Chris said, Abram's just returned from his rescue of Lot. He's expressed this great trust in God at the end of chapter 14. He's refused the spoils of war from the king of Sodom. Uh, But at the beginning of chapter 15, it appears that that trust is beginning to waver. It appears that despondency has begun to set in. God comes to Abram with these encouraging words. He says in verse 1, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. The level and the source of Abram's despondency can be seen then in verse 2 when he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The reason that Abram was despondent was because God had promised him something and it didn't seem to have happened. God had promised Abram descendants and uh, and, uh, descendants who would inherit the land. But none of it had seemed to have happened yet. Abram had left his home. He'd gone to the land that God had showed him. And all he had to show for it was a household full of servants, no child, and no one to inherit the land that he didn't have. 
Abram lived in what one writer I think has helpfully called the gap between promise and reality. God had promised Abram those things and those things had not yet come to pass. And like Abram, we live in that same gap between promise and reality. God has promised things to us and he doesn't seem to have delivered on them yet. God makes promises to make us holy and blameless. And yet perhaps when you look at your life, you wonder sometimes why God doesn't do more. Why isn't there more holiness and more blamelessness? You've been struggling with the same sin for 20 years. You still struggle after 20 years to control your temper. You still struggle after 20 years to not say those unkind things. God promises to restore the world, to end violence, to end war, to bring peace, to end death and decay. But it's been thousands of years, hasn't it, since Jesus died on the cross, since he rose again from the dead? Where's the peace? Where's the end to violence? God promises that his church will be a spotless and beautiful bride. A great community of saints. A loving community. But more often the church is deeply flawed and far from spotless and far from beautiful. We live in the gap between promise and reality. We don't see always what God has promised. And if we're not careful, like Abram, that gap between promise and reality can lead us to doubt and to despondency. We begin to doubt the goodness of God. We begin to doubt that God is trustworthy. Can I really trust that God will do this? We may even begin to doubt the very fabric of what we believe. Chapter 15 then reminds us that we live in the gap between promise and reality. But notice, please, that even in the midst of this doubt and despondency, Abram doesn't abandon God. There's this gap, there's this doubt, there's this despondency, but Abram doesn't abandon God. He deals with his doubt and despondency by turning to God. He seeks answers from God as to what's going on. What can you give me, he says to God? How come I remain childless? Later in the chapter, when God reiterates his promise that Abram will inherit this particular land, Abram asks God, but how can I know that I'll possess it? And yet in 15, chapter 15, verse 6, we're told that Abram believed God. The New Testament writers describe Abram as the father of all those who believe. And this chapter is held up as the great evidence of that, of Abram as the man who believed. But faith, struggling with doubt and despondency, is the picture of faith that we see in this chapter. And maybe that's not the kind of faith that we would expect coming from a person who is described as the father of all those who believe. In other words, Genesis 15 shows us something about the nature of faith that we might not see otherwise. First of all, it shows us the difference, I think, between faith and unbelief. 
So Abram could have dealt with his doubt and despondency by giving up on God. He could have said, well, God, you promised to give me a child. You promised to give me the land, but I don't have it, so I'm out of here. I'm going back, I'm going back to my family. And some people do exactly that. They become a Christian and they expect that God will do everything straight away. That they'll suddenly have no more problems in life or that their whole life will now be filled with joy. They expect that the church will be perfect. And when they don't see those things, when those things don't seem to be the case, they give up on the faith. Remember a friend of mine saying that a man in his church came to him and said, uh, I'm, I'm leaving Christianity, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. He said, why is that? He said, I became a Christian, I thought that God would make me my life full of joy. And my life is not full of joy. And so I'm, I'm giving up, I'm, I'm leaving. And he said, well, that just shows that, just shows that the, the God that you were serving was joy, not God himself, doesn't it? Abram doesn't do that. He deals with his despondency and his doubt by dealing with God. The opposite of abandoning the faith is not some kind of of equanimity in the face of difficulties. The opposite of abandoning the faith is what Abram does. He speaks with God. He speaks with God like at the beginning of the chapter. He asks those questions. How can I know? Where is the child? That's faith. And in that circumstance, God comes to Abram and says these words of comfort. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram wrestles with God. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Those are impassioned words. He sounds like a broken man. But in his brokenness, he doesn't abandon God and he doesn't pretend that everything is okay. He deals with his doubt and despondency by dealing with God. So chapter 15 shows us the difference, I think, between unbelief, which abandons God, and faith, which deals and wrestles with God. Second chapter 15 also shows us the difference between faith and what what I like to call believism. Believism is where you just try and convince yourself that something is true and you just kind of push out any, any kind of doubt. So you sort of repeat to yourself, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe this is true. It's kind of like the, the little engine that could. You know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And if you say it enough times, it's really true. But true faith, you see, isn't believism. It's not just believing in a set of facts and pushing away any kind of doubt. True faith is believing in things that are true and true facts, but it's more than that. It's about believing in the God who stands behind the facts. It's about believing in a person and dealing with a person. True faith says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? True faith says, Father, Jesus said that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, but the church looks like it's falling to pieces. What's going on? True faith says, you promised God that whosoever calls on your name will be saved, and yet I feel as though you're as far away from me now as you have ever been. 
What's going on? I'm not leaving here until you answer my prayer. Faith that never wrestles with God, that never wrestles with that gap between the promise and the reality, faith that doesn't wrestle with God is probably not faith at all. Because true faith is faith in a person who we talk to and plead with. True faith is not the opposite of doubt and despondency. True faith is faith that deals with doubt and despondency by dealing with God. Unbelief deals with doubt and despondency by abandoning God or by not dealing with God at all. Well, chapter 15 shows Abram as a man dealing with doubt and despondency because of the gap between promise and reality. It shows him as a man dealing with those things by dealing with God. But more importantly, chapter 15 shows us, as, shows us God dealing with Abram's doubt and despondency as well. In verse 4, God speaks to Abram to reassure him. God says, This man, Eliezer of Damascus, this servant in your house, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And God takes Abram outside and he has him look up at the stars in the sky and he says, if you can count the stars in the sky, that's how many descendants that you'll have. And as God speaks these reassuring words to Abram, Abram is snatched out of his doubt and his despondency and he believes God. And in response to that, we find some of the most remarkable words in the Bible. In verse 6, where it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram would receive all that God had promised, not because he was a great man, clearly not because he was a man of great faith, but because he was a man who believed God, who believed his promise and who took him at his word. That Righteousness and faith relationship is unpacked a little bit more in the strange ceremony that comes in the second half of the chapter. It seems as though Abram's questions have not totally evaporated, uh, even once he believes God, because he asks in verse 8, well, how can I know, God, that I'll gain possession of this land that you've promised? And in response, God does this strange thing, which for us is strange at least, but for Abram would have been very significant. God tells Abram to fetch various animals, a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a dove and a pigeon. He tells him to cut the animals and to, and to uh, put, uh, cut them in two and, and lay them out, halves side by side with a kind of passage in between them. It seems a strange thing to do to us. It seems, well, particularly messy, I suppose, quite frankly, uh, but what Abram, God was telling Abram to do was an ancient practice. It was used when two parties were making an agreement with each other. It was an ancient covenant-making ceremony. A covenant is a promise bound by an oath. And the two people making the pact would, would, do, would go through this ceremony and together they'd walk down between these pieces cut in two. And it was a way of symbolising their pact, a way of kind of binding themselves in this oath to each other that they would do what they'd promised. But the most remarkable thing about this covenant-making ceremony here in Genesis chapter 15 is that apart from laying out the pieces of the 
the sacrifices, Abram has no other part to play. God alone walks down that passageway between these cut-up pieces. Not God and Abram, but God alone, symbolised by this smoking firepot and this blazing torch. God alone binds himself under an oath to promise to do what he has said. In other words, God was making a covenant with Abram, swearing this oath to do what he's promised. But that outcome depended on one person and on one person alone. It didn't depend on Abram keeping his end of the bargain. It depended on God. And all Abram had to do was to trust God and to receive what God had promised by faith. God's oath to Abram confirms that God's promises don't depend on Abram or on us, but on God alone. Well, that's such a remarkable encouragement, I think, that God's promises aren't dependent on us. Because I think our great fear is, one of our great fears, is that we might put what God has promised somehow at risk. Isn't one of our deep fears that we'll somehow muck everything up? That somehow... We'll get it wrong and we'll put God's promises in jeopardy. That somehow we'll lose them or or we'll do something that God can't recover from. So often in life we make mistakes, don't we? And we can't put the pieces back together. We make promises to people and we muck it up and we can't recover from it. And so we think that perhaps God is in the same situation that we're in that he might make a promise as well and that, he, that we might muck it up and that he can't recover from what we've done. But no, but no. God says to Abram, it's not like that. These promises that I'm making to you don't depend on you, they depend on me. Remember Abram, Abram leaving the promised land back in Genesis chapter 12 and going down to Egypt and, sell, and giving his wife away. Because of the famine. He was afraid what would happen. That didn't muck up the promises, did it? God was still faithful. God shows Abram here that he is absolutely committed to doing what he has said. God will do it. And all Abram has to do is receive it by faith and trust that God will do what he said. I think it's remarkably compassionate how God deals with Abram here. God comes down to Abram's level and speaks in Abram's language. Sometimes people talk about God as though God is a covenant-making God because covenant-making is somehow intrinsic to his character. It's just what he does. But frankly, I'm not very convinced by that. You see, the reason that God makes a covenant here with Abram is not because it's intrinsic to his character, (laughs) but because God is stooping to Abram's level and speaking in Abram's language. He's taking the language of Abram's day and saying, you can trust me. Abram was doubting, and that's why God stooped to his level and, and helped him out and spoke in his language. 
the writer of Hebrews said that God swore by himself to make it crystal clear that, what he, that he would do what he had promised. The writer says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Why did he do it? He did it for us. Because we struggle so much to believe him. What Abram says out loud, how can I know? We whisper in our hearts. How can I know that I can trust God? How can I know that he'll do what he's promised? And God made this covenant with Abram. He swore this oath so that we would know. And if that wasn't enough, 2,000 years later, he made another covenant to show how deadly serious he was about doing what he'd promised. But this time God made a covenant not with heifers and goats and rams and pigeons, but he made it with the blood of his own son. That's how deadly serious God is about doing what he's promised. A promise sealed with an oath, sealed with the blood of his own son. If we had any doubts left over, in Jesus' death, God has showed once and for all that he is committed to doing what he has promised. He's so committed, he sent his son to die on a cross. And God also showed on the cross that it doesn't depend on us. Because Jesus hung there on his own. We weren't there with him. He did it by himself. And all we need to do is receive it in faith. Well, chapter 15 shows Abram as a man dealing with doubt and despondency because of this gap between promise and reality. It shows him dealing with those things by dealing with God And it shows God meeting Abram in his doubt and despondency by making this covenant and by swearing this oath. But finally, I think it's helpful just to show one thing that God doesn't do here. You see, when Abram said, where's my child and where's my land? God could have responded by saying, okay, look, it's been been quite a long time, hasn't it, since I made that promise. Here it is. Here's the child. And here's the land, you can have it today. But God doesn't do that. It would be 14 years more before Abram and Sarai had a son. And notice too what God promises in response to Abram's question about the land. How will I know that I'll gain possession of it? He says in verse 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. How could I know that I'll gain possession of it? Well, in 400 years, for the next 400 years, your descendants will be strangers and aliens in a land that doesn't belong to them. And you'll die and go to be with your fathers in peace. How is that an answer to to Abram's doubt and concern? God basically says to Abram, not in your lifetime. I'm going to do it, 
but not in your lifetime. So many of the things that God promises in Jesus are not for now. We taste them in part, but their fulfilment awaits the return of Jesus. That's the nature of a promise, actually, isn't it? The nature of a promise is that you don't have what's promised. The growth group that I'm part of, we've been looking at the prayers of Paul and helping us to learn to pray better. This past week, we looked at Paul's prayer in Colossians, where he prays for the Colossians that they would be patient and that they would endure. Patience and endurance, it seems, are two qualities which are so central to the Christian life. And yet two qualities which we often fail to have. We're not good at waiting. We live in the age of the instant. If we want something, we download it straight away. If we want a film, we don't even have to go to the video store anymore. We can download it. If we can't get it online, we go to the shops in town and we get it there. And if we can't get it there, we order it online. But then we have to wait the three days for postage. And it seems like an interminable wait, doesn't it? Unless it comes from overseas and then we have to wait two weeks. And every day we poke our heads out the window to see whether the mailman's putting it in the post box. Or whether the Australia Post van driving down the road is for us. Waiting 14 years for a child is not in our time frame. Still less waiting a lifetime. But waiting is the nature of living in the gap between promise and reality. Paul writing to the Romans thousands of years after Abram captures the life of waiting for the promise well when he says... We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. We live waiting for God to do what he has promised. We live by faith, praying by the Spirit that God would do it. We live by faith knowing that in Jesus, what God has promised, he will finally do. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we confess that we are not good at waiting Lord, we're impatient and we lack the strength to persevere. Lord, when we don't get what we're waiting for, we flag and fail and we become doubtful and despondent. We begin to doubt your goodness and doubt that you are trustworthy.
We begin to look for other answers, other possibilities, other options, other ways that our hopes and dreams might be fulfilled. Lord, forgive us for doubting you when you have sent your own son at the cost of his life to guarantee your words and to guarantee your trustworthiness. Oh, Father, help us to trust in you, to flee to you, to deal with our doubt and our despondency by turning to you and wrestling with you and laying hold of the promises as we seek them from you and plead with you. Oh, Father, give us the strength to live in the gap between the promise and the reality. And, Lord, we pray that you would hasten the day when our faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trumpets shall sound, and the Lord shall descend, and it shall finally be well with our soul. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.